This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 112. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 112 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, Audio-Technica, and now Lawton Audio. Yes, friends over at Lawton Audio, Brian Loudenslager, very small microphone manufacturer, joining the team. So yeah, a few changes. Um, speaking of changes, you might be hearing some change. I am today, I'm actually trying out a different microphone from Audio-Technica. I'm trying out the 4047, so you'll have to let me know what you think. Do you like it better than than the BP40 that I normally use? It's a great mic in many respects. I'm a little hesitant to use it because in my home where I, I do the podcast, there is the potential for noise. And it's really quiet right now. It's not raining, although it was raining earlier. And the dog's not in here snoring. Uh, my wife's not in the other room in her office doing a conference call. And my kids aren't home. So I have all those things going for me today in terms of quietness on the podcast. So... You'll have to let me know what you think. I had to take off my very uh, noisy coat, which if I was wearing it, it would sound like this. Yeah. Yeah. That would get annoying. So we're going to try this out and you tell me what you think. Uh, Feel free to leave a comment. Uh, Yeah, the AT4047. It's got a shock mount. I've got a pop filter in front of it. It's a large diaphragm condenser. It's really heavy. It's not a tube mic. And it, but it's really heavy. So there's, there's obviously, uh, I don't know, I think there are bricks inside that body. Yeah, so some uh, changes in growth in store for the podcast. Uh, one of the changes or one of the growth things is uh, we are now, by popular demand, available on Stitcher. A lot of people were asking me if we could, you know, be on Stitcher. And I was kind of a little hesitant uh, just to go through the motions. And I was a little unclear on how it worked. Well, I figured it out, obviously. And uh, we are now there. And uh, my buddy, uh, Kevin Ward over at, uh, mixcoach.com check out Kevin over at mixcoach.com and, uh, Lidge Shaw from recording studio Rockstars from Lidge's podcast. They were encouraging me and they said, you know, you really should check it out. A lot of people do it. Uh, Bobby Osinski's show is, is on there and, uh, yeah, I think you should, uh, check it out if you haven't. I'm kind of new to the concept, but, uh, you know. I think you might enjoy it. So we are on a number of places now. So when you go and you want to digest an episode, you can get it, of course, from the Working Class Audio podcast or the workingclassaudio.com site. But you can also get it from iTunes, iHeartRadio, YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, and now Stitcher. So yeah, good changes there. A little bit of growth. Um, Got a great guest. Let's talk about the guest. Yeah, can't forget the guest. I tell you, it's really uh, the community of people around the podcast uh, really helped make it a better thing. So, you know, like I mentioned, Kevin and Lidge, of course, you know, encouraging me to do the Stitcher thing. And then, of course, the listeners always are sending me suggestions for new guests. And one of the guests from the past, Steve Jenowick, of course, that appears on the show with uh, Al Schmidt. Steve is a big fan of the show, and Steve listens quite a bit on his way to and from Capitol Studios. So hello, Steve, if you're in the car. And Steve strongly suggested that we uh, interview the next guest, Mr. Frank Wolf, 
who's a longtime friend of his and a, a really talented guy. Talk about a pedigree and a list of uh, credits and job descriptions. So he's basically, if you go back to his past, he's a musician, so he plays piano. He's been a tech, he's a recording engineer, and he's a composer. And he works on not only records, but movies. So, you know, we were talking about some of the things that he's done. He's worked on like Grease Live. I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, that was a big thing. The Maze Runner, a lot of Disney and a lot of Pixar films, Toy Story 1, Toy Story 2, uh, Monsters, Inc. He's worked a lot with Randy Newman over the years as well. He's worked with Bette Midler. He's worked with uh, Neil Diamond, Bill Withers, Carrie Underwood, a lot of different people. And uh, and Julio Iglesias. You can't forget Julio. So, uh, yeah, Frank Wolf coming up by uh, way of suggestion from our friend Steve Genowick in uh, Los Angeles. Another topic before we get on with our uh, discussion with Frank Wolf is uh, John Cunaberti, who's a former WCA alum. You may not be aware, I mentioned it before, but John has a great series called the One Mike series that you should check out. I'll include a link in the show notes on the Working Class Audio site uh, for you to go check it out. But John does this thing where he basically takes a stereo mic and he takes a band and he places them around the mic in such a way that after they're done giving a good performance, they have a mix. It's done, period. And not only that, it's not edited. He captures it in uh, 4K video in one pass. It's like a one-shot kind of a deal. There's no editing in that either. So... I'm just going to include that link. I wanted to mention it because I think John's doing a really great thing. And I think that uh, working class audio listeners might be interested in checking out what he does. Uh, the first one that he did was uh, with a band called San Geronimo at 25th Street Recording in Oakland. And fantastic. Yeah, I think it'll just blow you away. If you think about how many options we have with multiple mics and tracks and unlimited, you know, plugins and this and that, to see and hear a performance this pure is just pretty stunning. And it's very thought-provoking on many levels, I think, in this day and age. So yeah, John Cunaberti's One Mic series. Be sure and check it out. It'll be in the show notes. There'll be a link just below all of the uh, information about our next guest, who who I think we should start talking to. So let's get into it here with our, our friend Frank Wolf here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I always say welcome to the podcast, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You started out in records, and you really transitioned into doing movies. And yes. it, you come at doing movies with that making record perspective. I do. Could you tell me a little bit about where you started and how you got into movies? Yeah. I actually started out in music. So I have a background as a pianist and reading music, and which all really helps a great deal in the scoring and, and, and film work. Um, and then I, I actually went from there to being a tech at a studio and then I started doing records. So that's, that's the background before the background. In 1987 or eight, I did a record with Randy Newman. And then right after that, he did a movie called Avalon and he asked me to do it with him. So that's where I really started doing movies. And then from that point onward, I sort of moved, well, I was 50, 50. And then I just found myself doing more and more films. As you say, the, the mindset of being a record guy has helped me, especially in movie musicals or songs with, I mean, movies with songs in them, either full-on musicals or like a, a Toy Story, which had two or three songs, Toy Story 1 and 2, but also a lot of underscore. 
So the whole background that I had really led into being really very well-suited for film work. I grew up listening to orchestras and playing piano, so I knew that part of it in terms of the underscore part. And then I did a lot of records, so I knew a lot about doing songs. And I found that especially then, a lot of the scoring engineers really didn't know much about rhythm sections or singers. Uh, they, they had come up classically with orchestras and did a spectacular job of that, but when it came to doing you know, a song for a Disney animated feature, they were sort of out of their, out of their wheelhouse and I was right in mine. Uh, and the biggest transition actually came after I'd been working with Randy for a while, I was asked to fill in for an, the, the scoring engineer for a Disney animated movie. It was uh, Hercules and they liked the way I approached the songs. So I ended up doing the songs in that movie and the other scoring mixer did all the underscore. And then after that, I did about 10 years of work just with Disney feature animation. So Wow. Your tech background. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so um, I was at UCLA studying music and really not enjoying it very much <laughs> and playing in a band. Uh, and we went in to do some demos at a studio and I thought, oh my God, I really want to be on the other side of the glass. So I changed my major at school from music to acoustics. And so my degree is in, in uh, physics and electrical engineering. While I was studying that, I met the guys over at the Village Recorder in West Los Angeles, and they invited me to stop by anytime I wanted. And so the whole three or four years while I was finishing my degree, I spent all my nights over there helping with, you know, designing things and hanging out and just sort of experiencing the, the vibe there. And by the end of it, I had sort of, I mean, there was just not even a question about it. I, I, I walked out of school and walked into a job as a tech there. And again, as a tech with the musical background, I didn't come to being a tech as a nerd, although I am definitely, but I came to it also with a musical sense. So if a client was saying, oh God, you know, the right and the left side don't sound quite the same, instead of looking at them and going, well, you know, they look the same on the oscilloscope, I lent my ears to it and I was, I, I built sort of that reputation as somebody who could come to it from a musical head and go, you know, you're right. It doesn't sound quite the same. And I don't know why, but we'll find out and we'll fix it. And it would be, you know, ringing transformer or some weird subtle thing that was very subtle, but definitely there. The owner of the studio had a policy where any of the staff members could use any free time they wanted for their own sessions. And it kept us all very happy. And it also gave us a lot of education. So I was, you know, anytime a studio was open, I would, you know, have friends come in and do a session. And eventually one of those got signed and I left the studio as an employee and became one of their clients. Did you go through a struggling period of learning how to use the studio to make uh, the records sound the way you thought they should sound? Oh, definitely. Some of the earlier, earlier stuff, especially that I did, you know, when I listen back to it now sounds very, it's like very realistic, but it's very flat sounding. And that comes from, you know, years of practice and in my case, years of keeping my ears open to other people's thoughts. And, you know, I, I like to, even now, I, if somebody has a suggestion that sounds sensible to me, I'm very happy to try it. And it doesn't matter who it came from. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I feel like I'm still on a learning curve and I hope I always will be. Do you think ego for some people that you've met along the way prevents them from succeeding because they they don't want to hear others' opinions in the way that you're describing yourself? I don't know. I mean, there are there are guys that I know whose ego would prevent them from listening to anybody, but if they happen to be, if they happen to have the right sort of 
mindset that lent them to having a lot of hits, then they have a lot of hits and they're well sought after mm-hmm. and for a long period of time. And oftentimes maybe not liked very much, but successful professionally. That's a hard question to answer. Okay. You know, I'm a social guy and I like to be social in the group. And since I came up as a musician, before I came up as an engineer or a producer, I I still like very much to feel like I'm part of the gestalt of making the music, not like the guy on the other side of the glass who is just twiddling the knobs and not interacting. Along those lines of getting along with people and being a social person, a lot of tech people aren't social people. So you you bring these unique skills to the table. I like to think so. (laughs) I mean, you really do. I mean, that's like, if you look, if you just kind of try to pigeonhole you a bit and just say, you know, tech, you know, recording engineer, musician, most people master one, maybe two. Do you think that those strengths that you've brought from the past have kept you in the game? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I can think of more specific events that happened than a specific piece of my training. I've talked about this before where Early on, somebody asked me if I would do a demo for them, and they only had $100. Um, and it was somebody that I knew well, and I was like, well, yeah, I'd love to. And I did it, and while we were working together, he got a call to do a session as a keyboard player uh, for Johnny Mathis the next day. And they didn't have an engineer. And he said, oh, I have an engineer. And the next thing I knew, I was working with Johnny Mathis and Michelle Columbier and these guys that, you know, I, I took a step from you know, from here to here and and missed, you know, a couple of flights of stairs in the process, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Those sorts of projects forwarded me more than necessarily knowing this specific, knowing how to do something. Mm-hmm. It was more, that's why I mean that I'm a social guy, but then I had the tools in my toolbox once I got there. So that was the important part of that. So once I got there, and then once I started working with Michelle Columbier, I did have the tools to be able to do rhythm sections and vocals and song work within a movie. And so that that made it possible for me to have gotten my foot in the door and then show what I could do. We've been talking about this on the show a bit. I've been t- touching on the concept of when to accept work, when to not accept work, uh, how to balance, like, it's easy to say yes. And it's not always easy to, uh, <laughs> you know, you, know you can fill fill up your calendar chock full of stuff for low paying gigs or questionable gigs, and you never know what's going to come out of them. But it's it's gigs like this that you just mentioned. I mean, a hundred dollar thing for a friend turned into, as you say, jumping a couple flights of stairs. Right. Well, for one thing, obviously, that was a long time ago. I didn't have a family. I didn't have the responsibilities that I have now. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have the reputation, but I still do. If I'm intrigued by something or intrigued by a person, last year or the year before, I met a sort of new composer, young guy who, uh, you know, who asked me if I could help him. And I, and I asked him to send me, you know, some examples of what the score was. And it was really cool. He had no money. And we figured out a way to do it in that I took his stereo recordings and turned the whole sort of palette into a 5-1 vibe. And there were two or three different distinct food groups of the music in this, in this film. And then I gave it back to him, and he was able to take those 5.1s. And, you know, if he wanted to manipulate a few levels here and there, he could, but everything was printed and ready to go. And it allowed me to do it for next to nothing and not use up a week or two of my time. And it allowed him to know that he and I could start a relationship where... 
he knows that I'm going to deliver something to him that he really likes. And it it worked great. Hmm. It worked really well. We've worked together again since and developed a relationship. And so as he comes up, you know, I'll be the guy he calls. And obviously you and I both know, and everybody listening to this knows how key relationships are in the business of audio in general or in any business really. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Randy Newman? Yeah, we we shared a manager in those days, Peter Asher, and I had been working with Peter. That was w- another one of the things that had come, actually, oddly enough, through that Michelle Columbier, Johnny Mathis uh, association. I started working more at George Mastenberg's studio, uh, the complex in West Los Angeles. And through that, George heard some of my work and recommended me to Peter to finish something that he didn't have time to finish. And then I started working with Peter and I spent 10 years working with Peter Asher on Neil Diamond and uh, Diana Ross and Cher and Neil Diamond and a lot of these big artists. And during that time, I also asked Peter to manage me, which he did. And during that time, he introduced me to Randy Newman and got me on that record that we did together. Uh, it's called Land of Dreams. We did seven songs and um, with Mark Knopfler producing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, Tommy LaPuma did produce four songs and he worked with his guy. So I did about two thirds of the record. And then I, then I worked with Randy on Avalon. And then for many, many, many years, Randy and I worked together on uh, Toy Story 1 and 2 and Monsters, Inc. and Bugs Life and uh, a few other movies as well, a bunch of stuff. Uh, and a record that he wrote representing a musical that he wrote about Faust or called Faust. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really actually quite an interesting project. He wrote a, what was hopefully going to be a Broadway musical comedy version of Faust. And Peter got a deal to do a record of it first to hopefully propel the musical with all these big artists. So we had Randy singing the part of the devil and James Taylor singing the part of God, uh, Don Henley singing the part of Faust and Elton John singing the part of an angel that works in God's office, but he's on the devil's payroll. Uh, And Bonnie Raitt, who is the temptress working for the devil. And Linda Ronstadt, who is the sort of Miss Goody, you know, the woman that would eventually turn fast back back towards the light, as it were. And we did this unbelievable record over a period of months. And, you know, during all those years and all those projects, we we developed a strong relationship and we worked together until a few years ago when, you know, he started working with a producer that had his own guy and I started working on a lot more other projects and our time just sort of separated us. We're still in touch pretty often. And, you know, I, I figure one of these days we'll work together again when the time works out. As you've mentioned, Randy and Toy Story and some of these other like Monsters Inc., I, I cannot help but get the song out of my head, You've Got a Friend in Me. Right. I have young kids. You know, we've seen all those films, know those tunes. They're great movies. I mean, the Pixar folks are, to me, just at the absolute, the cream of the crop. They're so creative and they're so smart about what they're doing. And in those days, it was just all, like, how far can we push the bar? How, how, how you know, how, how, how dramatic can we make this? How can we use the technology to make it that much better? And the, the fact that it's all computer generated, all 100% computer generated, could have led it to being um, impersonal and cold and sort of, you know, what you might expect from, in quotes, nerds that play with computers. And it's exactly the opposite of that. In those days when I, I went up to their offices in Northern California and they had, you know, toys on the floor coming out of the, dripping out of the offices. And, you know, these guys were just, 
they were they were at the forefront of of the technology and using it to be really human. That, that's the way I always looked at it. And you know, those movies are an example of it. They've set the bar for sure quite high because even when and this this is very telling. If I go to a, a movie with my kids, my youngest especially, very critical of like if we see a preview for uh, a computer animated movie, if the computer animation is in any way janky looking or kind of half ass, he's the first person out of the family to call it out and go, that looks really bad. The, yeah. the, the, the animation. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I know. Cause you've seen too many Pixar movies and your expectations are like way up here. You know, and the kids, let's, let's face it. The, the, you know, these kids now have grown up with this technology. They're not only accustomed to it, but they, they expect it. You know, if it's, <laughs> if it isn't there, they're like, you know, I can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you kind of a potential rabbit hole question, and I don't know quite how to articulate it, so I'll do my best. And you were talking about the the Pixar guys and, you know, being in the room with incredibly creative people at the top of their game, Mm -hmm. cream of the crop. And I wonder if, do you think that in those moments, and I'm sure you've been in a few of these uh, in studio situations and movie situations, when creative people of that caliber get together, do you think it's, it's the level it's at because of the, the group effort, or do you think it's just, there's that many brilliant people in the room? Oh, I don't think there's a rule about it. Sometimes it's from the head of one person. And sometimes it's, you know, the sum of the parts is greater than any of the parts. You never know. I mean, it really, I can only say, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. Okay. Uh, I mean, with those guys, it's clearly collaborative, you know. I mean, John had the Lasseter has the had the initial spark that drove it, but then he, the guys that he surrounded himself with were all equally talented and equally creative and equally brilliant. And I think if that if that group of people hadn't happened to land together at that time, it may never have happened. Who knows? I mean, there's there's no way of knowing. You know, w- woulda, coulda, shoulda. But it's man, it's uh, and a bunch of them came out of the same. Uh, class at Cal Arts, I understand the, the the very first feature. I mean, the very first animation department um, at Cal Arts produced uh, all, a lot of those guys: Joe Ramp, John Lasseter, Tim Burton, Brad Bird. All of these guys who were just pillars in in that whole animation community. I'm I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but and that leads me to my next question, which is: You talked about your schooling. You're, you're talking about the schooling of the Pixar folks. A lot of times these days, and I'm not going to try to point the finger at any generation, but I think that my observation or perception is, is that people get out of high school and they want the fast track to, you know, a a high profile gig or they want the fame. And when it comes to recording professionals, uh, there's a lot of kids, a lot, well, a lot of, a lot of adults, we could say going to recording schools and focusing exclusively on those skills. Whereas I think my observation is, is a lot of successful people, their schooling is in a different background than the field that they ultimately became successful in. That's interesting. I mean, of the scoring guys that I know, some never went to school, some studied, one studied violin, one studied trumpet. I mean, in the old, in the, in the earlier days, I, I would say, you know, the sort of just a half a generation before me, there wasn't, to my knowledge, there wasn't a lot of, you know, the, uh, uh, schools you could go to for recording engineering. 
Mm-hmm. You know, guys either came to it through music or they came through it through radio or, or through tech or, you know, they were not, they were not happy being a trumpet player. So they started engineering or in my case, you know, I was just drawn to it because I always had a sort of a math science head, but it was always also very musical. Mm-hmm. I'm curious just if, does it make a person more well-rounded to go and study in other areas and eventually make their way into it? Or, you know, well, is it better to just be pointed about it and go right into the thing you're thinking is the best thing? Again, I don't know what's better. I would say it's better as a human to be more well-rounded and, and, <laughs> and well, and the, and the portion of the work of, of the job description that is the social part of it you know, requires you to be able to be, to be able to speak in, in areas other than just, Hey, you know, I use this new microphone. So, I mean, in that way, I guess being more well-rounded does means that you bring more to the table as a social, for the social part of the job, which is, you know, in many cases, 50% of the job is how you interact with the people you're working with. And, you know, I'm not the right guy for everyone. There's, there's composers that I have worked with once who were not the sort of warm and friendly you know, they just, and it, and it, and it doesn't always work and they don't call me back. And that's, you know, that used to hurt my feelings 30 years ago. And now I just sort of look at it like, well, it's all casting and I'm not right for every project and every project isn't right for me. But I've been really fortunate. I've been working in the last almost two years on uh, Beauty and the Beast, the live action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's with Alan Menken and all the the Disney live action folks. And it's been an unbelievable collaboration. I mean, uh, although I'm not named as a producer, I certainly was involved in the production of the music and and an integral part of every step of it. You know, that's been a huge, uh, a huge project. And that's with guys that I get along with great. Alan Menken and I have gotten closer and closer over the years, I, starting with that movie Hercules that I was on, in, you know, I don't know, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. maybe. We've done a lot of projects together and it looks like we have several more coming. The more well-rounded part of it leads me to be more comfortable in the room to be able to do the collaborative work outside of the actual recording of, you know, how do the, do you like the way the violin sound? When you go into work with other pros, is there just a, a mindset that you have that you're aware of? That's a good question. It's kind of, I, <laughs> if anything, I would say my mindset is to be sort of the opposite of having a mindset. You know, I've usually listened to the music, the demos ahead of time. But I really try to approach each project at at least in some ways new, not having a fixed, you know, well, here's how we're going to do it because it's, it, it always changes and it always evolves. And, you know, either the technology lets us do something new or this particular project or this director or the way they're going to film it or something informs a, a different way of working or a different, maybe a different um, overall sound, if it's orchestral sort of more organic, just like the, how did the room sound, or maybe more mixed with closer mics and and even and MIDI and all this other stuff that can really change the the landscape of the way the music sounds in the movie. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, oddly, I, I would you know the short answer to that is if I have a mindset, it's all at all. It's to try to keep my mind open to doing things in a way that's appropriate to what that particular project calls for. Mm-hmm. It, and this might be a tough one to answer. How do you think your peers describe you and your your the way you work? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm. I, I I would say that I think I'm well liked and respected. I I really. I mean, 
the part of this that I learned in my, you know, in my upbringing from my parents is, you know, the, just the way they are is you, you treat people with respect, no matter what their area within the, within the project is, whether they're an intern or the director, not to say that I don't defer to the director more readily than to an intern, but I, I just think everybody requires respect and, and I try to treat people that way. And so I think I'm well-liked and well-regarded as a person in the room. And then as for my work, I mean, I, I can only say I'm still working and in some ways I'm more on top of my game than ever. Mm -hmm. So I guess I must be well-liked. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a little, it's, that's a very weird question. I um, know, I know. I mean, I know how I'd like to be regarded and, you know, I feel like I am in every way from the you know, heads of music at studios down, like I say, down to the guy who, who brings in the coffee. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know I'm respected for my work. I know people think I do a really good job, whether it's, you know, uh, other engineers or the people that hire me. I mean, obviously the people that hire me think so, or they wouldn't hire me. Exactly. <laughs> Once again, pointing back to your body of work, I think that speaks volumes about you. Let's talk tech for a minute. Um, sure. For the audience, if you could maybe give a give us a description of when you go to work, obviously each job is different, but yeah. let's talk about this, actually. Steve brought this up. Steve Genowick brought this up. He said, ask Frank about the templates he builds. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. The delivery is always a little bit different, but it generally follows a pattern. And that is to say that when, when I, so the process is when I'm done mixing, I hand off my, my uh, mixes to the dub stage who puts it into the movie along with the dialogue and the sound effects. And those mixes are in the form of stems, which separate out food groups. So it might be, for example, in the project I just did, it's, it's the orchestral pass that has winds and strings. And then we generally did brass separately. So there's two 5.1 stems, one winds and strings, one brass. Then there's, depending on how much percussion there is, there may be two stems of percussion. Uh, if there's rhythm section, there's drums, there's bass separate, keyboards are separate always, harp is usually separate, and so on. And then if there are synth synths or synth sounds or, you know, that would be separate. Then there are choirs or background vocals, and those might be one stem or they might be two if it's men separated from women or if they're overlapping. And then there are lead vocals. And the lead vocals I generally deliver as a dry mono stem of the vocal and then a 5.0 stem of whatever effects I think may be appropriate in the theater. Mm -hmm. And those are separate because the dub guy may minimize those and bring his own effects in to make it sound a little bit more cohesive with the dialogue. So I guess what I'm getting at is I have to be able to mix, could be two or 300 tracks of audio into a group of stems that I will present where the, if the guy puts all the faders at zero, those stems will yield my mix. So, so my template has each of those food groups set already to the stems that I think they're going to go to, and then masters over those stems where I can uh, EQ or compress or do any sort of overall work I want to do to those. And then those go to stem tracks. And those audio tracks are all 5.1 stems, even if they're not 5.1 audio, so that everything is everything comes into the same six holes at the dub stage. And then I've got, a, you know, 30 or 40 different reverbs and effects that I can use as I want. And what all that allows me to do is once I sort of develop a sound for that particular movie that I think is going to carry through for most of that project, I save that as my raw template. And then every time I come to a new cue or a new song or whatever, I can start by pulling the song into that whole template. And it gives me a leg up to 
get it done more quickly and more cohesively. Mm. Um, it's a little complicated because in, inside of that would be, you know, if the orchestra is using two or three different reverbs, then all of the individual orchestra tracks might, there might be a hundred of them between the, between the uh, strings and winds and reverb um, and brass and perk. And yet I always, I want them to sound as though they were in the same room, but if they're going to separate stems, then each of those reverbs have to be duplicated to be able to go to that stem. So even though the strings and the brass may be sending to the same reverb setting, they have to be able to go to separate stems so that they remain separate. So all of that is in a template. And, you know, for example, in Beauty and the Beast, we had, oh, I would say easily 150 tracks of orchestra. Because if we decided that, oh, there's that clarinet melody and we really want to be able to keep that separate, that would be a separate stripe. We would have recorded it separately so it's clean and, and there's no leakage. And it would have the close mic and the medium mics and the room mics and its own reverbs, and that all goes to one stem. So you can see how the tracks would add up quickly. Yes. And, and then there were several sets of choirs, men, women, uh, men and women together, uh, closer groups, and then the on onset, you know, the people in the town. So they all have their own their own mics and their own takes. And so you could see that that would, you know, you, it, could, it could easily be 300 tracks of audio. And then that goes to all those stems and the masters and the reverbs, and it might be 500 tracks wide. And it's a lot to manage and you don't want to have to start from scratch each time. So that template has developed over a long period of years to the point where I find that it's flexible enough that I can change it to a given project at the beginning of the mix. Mm -hmm. and then keep that template for that project. And then the next project, I'll maybe use that as a starting point, change it for the next project, make a new template, and so on. And it's developed over a lot of years. Do you use a lot of color coding? You know, that's an interesting question. A lot of guys that I know use specific colors for specific food groups. So their perk is always brown and their strings are always green and so on. Uh, Pro Tools does this thing where if you assign a color, then when you turn the groups off, which you do sometimes for internal editing, the colors don't go off. And I prefer when I turn the groups off, everything goes to black and white. So I know my groups are on and off without having to ever think about it. Mm -hmm. So I, I allow uh, Pro Tools to assign its own default colors. I do not think of, oh, strings are green and brass is red and perk is brown and pianos are yellow. Uh, a lot of people do. I specifically don't. Um, I probably would if I knew that I could turn them on and off and it would still go black and white, but Pro Tools won't let me do that. Uh, I don't know if that's a clear answer, but... No, no, it's it's very clear. I That's a lot of tracks to be handling. Okay, so, and part of my organization is that if I've got, you know, let's just keep it relatively simple. If I've got, you know, strings and winds as a pass and brass as a pass and perk as a pass and piano and harp, the way that the, the default groups go... Each one of those will be a, a, an assigned color, different color from each other. And I'll take one track from each of those groups and pull them to the top of the session so that I, what I see is, you know, uh, let's say a, a, a green track that says orc left and a red track that says brass left and a, you know, a, whatever color, you know, yellow that says perk. And I, I can always see where any, any one of those food groups is playing by just looking at that one track. But I don't have to look through 300 tracks to scroll down and down and down. Oh, Christ, or the, uh, where did the perk come in? <laughs> so, because I, I try to keep it so that at the top of my session, I've got one track from each food group. Gotcha. So, and they all- And those are grouped. And those are grouped. So anything I do- Oh, and then there are also, um, I don't know, 
uh, I also have VCAs over all that stuff. Yeah. And I mix mostly in VCAs. And then if I need to, you know, splay out what's under the VCA, I, that's easily done on my, on my DAW. So, so I try to be organized so that I could sort of see the whole thing at once without having to scroll up and down because it's a lot of scrolling. Frank Wolf here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a little break from our interview with Frank, and we're going to talk about our friends at Audio-Technica in a sponsor break here. And I mentioned earlier in the show, I am experimenting today. Usually use the Audio-Technica BP40 on my voice, and today I'm using the Audio-Technica AT4047, and it's a large diaphragm condenser versus a dynamic mic. So um, really flexible mic in many ways. I've used it on many instruments and drum overheads, bass, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, vocals, my voice. And we have some samples up on the Working Class Audio website. That's under, let's see, where do I have that? Oh, yeah. It's under WCA bonus content, far right side of the navigation bar. If you go down, it'll say WCA Audio-Technica Mic Samples. Click on that. There's two segments below uh, from two different sessions with Nina Michella from Bird and Egg Studios here uh, in Northern California. And Nino and I tested out some mics and we created some samples for you to download so you can download those, see what you think. The 4047 is $699, uh, looks like the average price out online. So have a listen, see what you think. I always say, make an informed decision. It's not me telling you that it's the absolute best. It's just a mic that I really enjoy and I think you might enjoy it as well. But listen to the samples, see what you think. And get your hands on one and try it out. And that's the best way to do it, I think, is to make your own decision. So there it is, the Audio-Technica AT4047 here on the Working Class Audio podcast today. So uh, let's get back into it with Frank Wolf here on the Working Class Audio podcast. I think something that surprised me that Steve told me, and it might surprise a lot of people listening, you know, it's, it's one thing to be doing mixing at home for records. Mm -hmm. You're mixing at home for major movies. I am. And uh, the setup that you have, I assume it's a 5.1 setup? It is. Okay. Uh, and I don't normally get this deep into gear talk with people, but I'm just curious. What, are, what do I give have? Me, give, me a broad <laughs> give me a broad overview of, of your setup. I have a D-Command, 24 fader D-Command. Uh, as a as a console, and shockingly, I have five stock Tannoy SRM10B speakers. They are I, from their eighties. I mean, I've had I've had two pairs of them for probably that long. Um, I'm pretty near field here, and then I have a little you know a little sub, a twelve inch uh, Velodyne sub. The thing is that I know the speakers so well that I, I know what I'm getting, even though maybe I don't hear quite as much. I should back up. When I'm on a scoring stage, I have, um, I have a trio of ATC 100 speakers and subs. And that's a, a farther field, you know, midfield, far field kind of sound. And they, they really truly give me everything that's, that's there. The Tannoys are definitely a little tighter than that, but I know them really well. And I've been very fortunate that my room doesn't have any serious inherent problems. Uh, that was just luck. I moved into this house in 2010 and uh, I had plans to sort of make a control room and do some acoustic treatment. I had to mix a record like right away. 
and I stuck my speakers up and mixed and it just sounded, when we went to mastering, it was like, wow, this is great. So I thought, well, whatever it is, the stairwell is absorbing some bass and the floor is a little spongy, so it's absorbing some bass and it works. Hmm. And for example, with Beauty and the Beast, some of it, the, the score, a large part of the score I mixed here at home, some of the songs I mixed at British Grove Studios in London, it's Mark Knopfler's studio, and then brought back here and did some tweaks here and there. But, you know, the 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 lion's share of the song mixing wasn't done here. It was done uh, at a professional studio. Um, but, you know, I'm confident that I can mix anything here. And I've mixed, you know, and you know, enormous projects and, and never had a problem. But so you're mixing the music aspect of it. And in many cases, are you the one who's there on the scoring stage, uh, you know, mixing the film with everybody else, mixing your stems? You mean the dub? The dub stage, yeah. Uh, no, uh, no, I, I'm not. It's actually, there There are a couple of guys that do that. Uh, I never have. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's intriguing and it's and I'm curious about it. It used to be more that, you had a three-man dub crew, which one, one guy would be doing just dialogue, one guy would be doing just sound effects, and one guy would be doing music. But as time has gone by and budgets and technology, you more and more have maybe one guy doing all of it. And I'm, I'm not that guy. Okay. I, would, I would probably lean too heavily on the music. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the music up. But if there was a three-man crew and I was able to do it, I would be happy to do so. It's, okay. a, it's a different gig. You know, yeah. it's taking the music and trying to carve it in a way that it will speak as loudly as possible within the dialogue and sound effects and not get too buried. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of making it pristine and beautiful because a lot of times it would get overridden by, you know, tires screeching on gravel. Let's talk a little bit about your, uh, about family, work-life balance. That's a tough, really tough one. Yeah. It's, uh, that seems to be a common theme. What, uh, What's been your experience and lessons learned and what can you pass to others? One of the really big things is that, you know, my wife knows who I am and what I do. And even though it's frustrating sometimes that I'm not available for periods of time, she's not, I mean, she just knows. She knows that I love her. I know that she loves me. You know, we're open about everything, but it took me three times to get it right. Okay. She, I mean, I won't say it isn't hard sometimes when I'm either working, you know, weeks in a row, crazy hours or out of town for weeks in a row. But I think for me, the, the, with my wife, the biggest thing is that we, ha- we, we know each other. We know, she knows that I'm doing what I'm doing. And, you know, there are times when I wish I didn't have to work so many hours, but that's, that's the nature of the game. My kids have all grown up, you know, knowing that if I say I'm going to be home in an hour, it might be three, that I do the best I can. And my younger kids have the good fortune of Uber, which my older kids didn't. So, and I know that may sound a little silly, but it means that, you know, I'm not sitting there in the studio going, shit, I got to get out of here. My daughter needs to be picked up from, you know, class or whatever, you know, because she can Uber home. I I, I know that sounds like a sort of a, a trite example, but it actually has been very different than my older kids who grew up at a time when, you know, as a single dad, I had to figure out how to get them home. Right. You know, and I might be working till two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, now I'm working at home a lot of the time. And if I have to leave for now and come back, the, the, and this, this also goes, it speaks to the relationship that I have with the people I'm working with. My agreement is, you know, I have a per day fee, but my agreement is if a, if a, if a day is six hours one day and seven the next and three the next, I add those up. And when it 
comes to a 10 hour day, then that's a day. And I, and I don't necessarily, so I know that as long as I get it to them when they need it, if I need to take a couple hours off, I can, and nobody's looking at me going, Hey, wait a minute, you weren't working. Uh, if you, if you know what I mean, and there's right. mutual trust there, I, tr- you know, they know that I'm not, you know, that I'm not screwing around with the hours. I'm, I'm adding up my hours and calling 10 hours a day and then moving to the next day, even if it spans three days. Ah, okay. So, and that's a personal relationship that I have with the guys I work with. And it's really important when you have younger kids. I'm, my youngest is 15, but still they, you know, they need driving around and they need pickup and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, four of my kids are older and driving, but between my, me and my wife, we have seven kids. It's a, it's a lot. So. Bit of a Brady Bunch thing. Yeah. Yeah. I Some of the listeners you, I, are like, who's the Brady Bunch? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, really, truly, it has, it has made a big difference, oddly enough, that, you know, having some of these new tools like Uber, I mean, of, of all things, who would, who would have thought that that would be a big deal? But it's a big deal. I live in Tarzana out in the valley, San Fernando Valley, and my two do- younger daughters go to school in, on the west side. So, and their friends are mostly on the west side. So, you know, getting them back and forth after school or schlepping to a friend's house, it's, you know, it could be an hour round trip depending on the time of day. So knowing that I don't necessarily have to take that hour off and that the kids know, look, you know, dad's working. And it gives them some independence too. It does. It does. They can come and go at their, you know, at their leisure. Yeah. So I want to touch on, um, not any specific numbers per se, but if you have any general philosophies, advice on finances as a recording professional, some concepts to to be thinking of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Your laugh is very telling. Don't. Um, <laughs> well, try to keep your first wife. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Step one. Step Don't one, split choose, with the spouse. It's st- choose wisely. No, I mean, I would say the biggest thing, and it took me until not that long ago mm-hmm. to learn this, but the biggest thing is when you have a big project and you're making lots of money, make sure and put some of it away. This is um, particular to, you know, a lot of a lot of the, my colleagues and I are all, we, we're incorporated, which is just a tax thing. But having that corporation means that most of the money I, I earn is paid to me without having tax, taxes taken out. Mm-hmm. But I still have to pay the taxes at the end of the year. It just means that I get to pay it quarterly instead of having them take it out. And what that means is that if you're, you, you really have to like take a third of that money and stick it in another account and don't think about it because otherwise you end up at the end of the year going, shit, I owe this much money and I spent it. You know, I, I talked about this several episodes ago and my particular experience has brought me to a point where when I get paid per check, I actually created a a quick link in a browser to pay the IRS online. So I'll deposit the check and just go, okay, well, a third of that goes right to them. So that hopefully when I get to the end of the year- You're close. I'm close, give or take, you know, whatever, how many dollars. But yeah, because for me personally, I've always struggled with, you put that money away and then it's like, oh, I really want that. I'll just take a little bit out and I'll return it. 
And I find if I just get rid of it immediately and put some money in retirement, give some money to the IRS, then yeah, I feel a little more it, comfortable. It's a really, really good idea. Um, I had a friend recently who said, you know, create a, a savings account at another a separate bank so that it's not on, you know, I mean, obviously you can always get to it, but you know, I have 10 accounts under, under one bank, you know, my personal account, my business account, a savings account for taxes, a savings account for discretionary stuff, personal, my kids' accounts. I mean, just a bunch of accounts. And it's so easy to get on and see them all at once and go, Ooh, I'll just take a little bit of that cash out of here. And so I have a friend who said, you know, why not go to a completely separate bank? Don't go online at that bank. Just, you know, when you get that check, just send a third of it over to that bank and, and then know that it's there. But I like your idea too of um, paying it as you go. And I've been doing some of that this year as well, because these these last two years happen to be particularly good years at, and coming after a couple of years that were not quite as good. Mm-hmm. And so um, this year I suddenly realized, she's you know, I, I, I owe some extra money for last year. Uh, I should say for 2015. So every time I got a check, I threw some money that that way. It's a, it's a, it does help. And it's gone. You can't spend it. I know. Once it's gone, you're like, hey, I already paid you. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, we use debit cards, uh, 99% of the time we don't use credit cards for the same reason, just because if you don't have it, then you shouldn't be buying it. Absolutely. And, and, you know, at the level that I am and I make a good income, there are months when I don't work. Like right now I just finished Beauty and the Beast. I'm not sure what's coming next. I mean, I know I've got stuff later in the year for sure. Cause you know, I've got these Mencken projects that are coming up, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure something will come between now and then but I don't know what mm-hmm. yet. So that means, you know, two months from now, I still have to pay my mortgage and I still, you know what I mean? It's, you have to look out for that because our sort of work, unless you're making so much more than you spend, which I don't, um, and most don't, you have to look out for the times as a freelancer when you're not working. Because you're still going to have to pay the internet bill. You're still going to yeah. have to pay the electric bill. That would be my, my advice and suggestion is, you know, build a, build a life, a financial life based on a longer arc than, oh, I'm doing great right now. Because unless you're one of a very, very, very few people, it's going to go up and down and up and down. You know, even, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I'm considered to be successful in what I do. I'm well-respected there's still months that I don't work. Yeah. And at the end of those two or three months when I'm not working, I'm looking around going, geez, you know, that went fast. So, and again, you know, I have seven children. Yeah. Right now, let's see, two of them are in college and, th- and two of them are in private school, high school. I mean, right there is, that's a, <laughs> you know. That's a chunk of dough. It is. And of course, you know, whatever health insurance situation, you know, uh, there is I, to provide. I will say that as a film mixer i'm in the union ah and as long as i qualify with enough hours every six months which i do my insurance covers me and my wife and any of my kids who are 25 years old and younger so now i've got two that are 26 and and they are off my my thing but in the meantime i still have seven people on my insurance and it's great insurance and it's you know no deductible and i mean the the union insurance is really good and and to to qualify for that you to to be in that union and that union is tell me what the union is called again it's IATSE okay i don't even know what it stands for okay <laughs> i mean i did, i could think about it but it's IATSE is it's uh it's everybody from the you know the the grips to the secretarial pool at fox to audio to editors it's all different families of the union but 
I'm local 700. There's an editor's branch. There's all these different branches, but it's a lot of people. And so it's a healthy, it's a pretty healthy union Mm -hmm. and the insurance is really good. And, but, to, uh, but to qualify, you have to do a certain amount of mixing hours per month. Okay, per, so the per, initial the initial qualification. I've been in it so long; it's you know, it's it's a little hard to remember. But yeah, once you're in, you have to do a certain number of hours per six months, and then that gets you the next six months. And if you do more than those hours, you can put up to six months in a bank. So then, if your next six months is a little slow, you can use back out of that bank. It's a lot of hours. It's four hundred hours every six months. So, you know, you've got to definitely be working fairly regularly, but it's a huge, it's a huge perk, you know, I mean, especially with all the talk about uh, uh, medical insurance these days. Um, The way I initially got in a hundred years ago is I was doing a TV show and we were working at a studio that was not a signatory and the, and the the, uh, TV studio said, oh, you guys have got to be working at a studio that's a signatory. And the guy who owned the studio said, oh, I'll become a signatory. And when they do that, everybody who's employed there can automatically get in because they can't put you in a position of having to fire your employees because you're going union. So I got in through that. I didn't have to have a sponsor. I didn't have to qualify with a certain number of hours. I just got in. That was like 35 years ago or 30 years ago. And then I've been an active member ever since. Interesting. Well, very cool, man. I'm going to have to let you go, but um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, uh, thank you. It's been really nice. I I appreciate it too. Talk to you uh, shortly. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Bye-bye. Bye. There it is, Mr. Frank Wolf here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Really enjoyed speaking with Frank. We covered a lot of topics there. I hope you enjoyed that. But we are out of time, so we have to thank everybody. We have to thank, of course, Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, Cole Williams. And we want to thank our sponsors. We want to thank Gearslets.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, Lawton Audio, and Audio Technica. And we want to thank, of course, you, our listeners. Appreciate you taking the time to listen. And as usual, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.